are listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. Hey everybody, welcome back. It's episode 7. In today's episode, Ohio versus Abolitionists. There's the old English saying that the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, today we're going to find out what happens when the pen and the sword join forces. Because today we're talking about abolitionist John Brown and author and activist Harriet Beecher Stowe. They both were leaders of the abolitionist movement, the most important political and social movement of the mid-19th century. And today we'll focus on two of the most famous abolitionists, John Brown from Hudson, Ohio, uh, up near Cleveland, Akron, Northeast Ohio, and Harriet Beecher Stowe, who spent some you know twenty plus years uh, or twenty years in Cincinnati. And we'll focus on on the eighteen fifties, a decade uh, of great division of sectionalism, um, so much going on, and, and a decade that would end with the U.S. Civil War. We'll look at the central role those two played, John Brown and Harriet Beecher Stowe, in sparking that war. These two were actually fifth cousins, John John and Harriet. Uh, as well, you know, we found that in our research. They both come from Connecticut, um, but moved to Ohio at young ages. You know, as a Southerner of the time declared, Harriet Beecher Stowe had spread the the anti-slavery kindling that John Brown lit with his torch of violence. Stowe had hailed John Brown as the man who's done more than any man yet for the honor of the American name. You know, we'll also talk about Lincoln, when he meets Harriet Beecher Stowe in 1862 during the war in the White House, and what he tells her that she's the little lady who started this great big war. Today we travel to the Stowe House, uh, one of our sites, one of our 59 sites around the state for the Ohio History Connection, Um, and we go to the Walnut Hills area, a neighborhood of Cincinnati, just north of downtown, and we visit the Stowe House and talk with Executive Director Christina Hartlip about... Harry Beecher Stowe's huge impact on the abolitionist movement and her role in starting the Civil War. She's the author of Uncle Tom's Cabin, the most popular book of its time. Uh, we'll also head to Hudson, Ohio, to the Hudson Historical Society. We met with Gwendolyn Mayer there, the archivist uh, who's been up there for many years. Uh, that was John Brown's hometown. He lived there for decades when he moved to the new Western Reserve in, in 1805 as a child. Uh, we'll follow John Brown's rise uh, to the most famous abolitionist. He used violence to try and bring an end to slavery. He was very different from some of these other, uh, when you talk about a Frederick Douglass, when you talk about a William Lloyd Garrison. Uh, Brown believed that violence was the only way. And lastly, we'll go to Harper's Ferry, uh, the national park there, the former armory uh, in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia, right on the border of Virginia and Maryland. And we'll speak with Dennis Fry, the former chief historian and author at uh, Harper's Ferry National Park, the site of John Brown's famous 1859 raid of the Harper's, uh, Harper's Ferry Armory. You know, it's the first battle uh, in his war to spark a slave uprising in then Virginia. Um, and we'll talk about that great event with, with Dennis Fry. 
Fry is the man when it comes to Harper's Ferry. He's there, you know, over 30 years, 20 years as the chief historian. Um, you know, we were only able to share a sliver of our great interview with Dennis, uh, but we'll talk more with him about John Brown's raid. Our beer for the episode today is Lock 15 Brewing Company and their Instigator IPA. Lock 15 Brewing Company in Akron, a smaller brew pub, but we're drinking their Instigator IPA, 7.7%. The logo is actually a John Brown drinking a beer. So the website again, lock15brewing.com, uh, drinking a beer dedicated to John Brown, the Instigator, the Instigator IPA. Uh, today we're going to travel to the far corners from the northeast to southwest. We'll tell the story of two of America's most important abolitionists. We'll break down the abolition movement in Ohio and how Harry Beecher Stowe and John Brown take their movement, not just to the rest of the country, but to the world, and help accelerate the Civil War and ultimately bring an end to slavery through the pen and through the sword. It's Episode 7, Ohio vs. Abolitionists. When I was a kid, I had a trapper keeper that I just loved. Uh, loved trapper keepers. Those things were awesome when you were a kid. But it had important American historical dates inside of it. And I remember you see you know, July 4th, 1776, and D-Day, and Pearl Harbor, the moon landing. Uh, all these important, you know, probably had 15 or 20 of the most important dates in American history. But it also had October 16th, 1859 on there. The day that, and it said, John Brown's raids Harper's Ferry. I always thought, you know, what was that? I, and I didn't know as a kid. Uh, my parents actually took us there on a trip to the, the Outer Banks. We stopped and looked at John Brown was actually from Ohio. I had no idea at the time. Um, and he would live in one of the first cities in Ohio, in really the Western Reserve, known as Hudson, Ohio. And we traveled to Hudson uh, to meet with Gwendolyn Mayer. She's the archivist and works at the Hudson Historical Society and Library. Uh, was gracious enough to actually let us sit, and they have a podcasting studio up there. Uh, and we sat down for this interview with her. But we talked to her about early Hudson, which I didn't realize is one of Ohio's very first cities and the home of the Browns. Hudson, Ohio is the third oldest community in Northeast Ohio. It was the third settled. Um, as you said, 1799. By 1800, David Hudson and a few other families were here. By 1805, there were upwards of 20 families in this area. Um, I would tell you that the you thought that perhaps it was a primitive settlement. They had a lending library. They were educated people, and within 10 years, they would have a newspaper in this community. So, so to some degree, it was very much a, um, a culture-aware community, even though it was very small in its earliest days. Certainly, agriculture was the primary economic driver at that point in history, but because it's such an older community, it was well established. Many people knew of Hudson, Ohio. In 1801, um, Owen Brown comes to Northeast Ohio. By 1805, he's in Hudson. Owen Brown is our first station master on the Underground Railroad, which means that he was responsible for the transportation and the safety of people through our community to the next destination on the Underground Railroad. He lived literally at the center of our community, so he would have been aware of all that's going on in the community, who was coming in, who was going out. To some degree, as people would um, reveal themselves, he knew their politics and their feelings. It was... um, a community that grew up with a newspaper. We had a newspaper in 1827 that's a very abolitionist newspaper. We had upwards of 
30 families in this community that were involved in hiding fugitive slaves. There were multiple anti-slavery societies in this town. Hudson really is known more for the division between the colonizationalists and the abolitionists, and to some degree, the Copperheads. It was a town that was um, equally uh, divided in three major areas. Literally, you had Copperheads living next door to abolitionists, living next door to colonizationalists. And Hudson becomes the community where there is a division between the colonization movement and the abolitionist movement. Our other subject on the show today, Harriet Beecher Stowe, She's born about a decade later, also in Connecticut. Like we said, they were Brown and Harriet Beecher still were fifth cousins. Um, you know, her family moves to Ohio for the same reason that that uh, John Brown did. Her dad gets a job in Cincinnati. Her father was a pretty famous preacher named Lyman Beecher, a very prominent family. Uh, there's some of her brothers and sisters. Uh, we've actually talked about a few on the show before, especially her her brother Henry Ward Beecher. You can go back and listen to our Ohio versus the Victorian age episode to hear about a scandal involving he was the preacher of his day and we traveled to the stowe house to sit down with christina hartleap she's the executive director of the stowe house you can go to stowehousecincy.org um it's over there on walnut hills on gilbert avenue uh, available thursday through sunday for tours uh school groups all kinds of uh, events down there at stowehousecincy.org we sat down with christina and talked to her about this prominent family the beechers moving to Cincinnati in 1832. So Harriet Beecher was born and raised in New England. And if she had stayed in New England, she never would have learned the things that she needed to know. She never would have had the experiences that she needed and met the people that she needed to be able to uh, write the anti-slavery book of Uncle Tom's Cabin. But living here in Cincinnati for 18 years enabled her to meet those people and have those experiences. So when she comes into the city in 1832, basically she's dropped into this place where she's meeting people who are pro-slavery. Cincinnati itself, the business community of Cincinnati was very pro-slavery. And you might be thinking, really, it's a Northern city, but no, Cincinnati is really the northernmost Southern city. And in terms of that, the commodity that was coming out of Cincinnati in the 1830s and 40s was pork. Porkopolis. And so that business community of Cincinnati was very tied into the slave economy. All those lesser cuts of meat were being shipped downriver to be part of slaves' diets. And so the business community was making money off slavery. But there's also a large anti-slavery population here in Cincinnati. There's a large free black community here in Cincinnati. And right across the river, now she's meeting slaves and slave owners as well. As Christina said, they moved to Cincy, the Beechers, uh, for him to take a, their dad, Lyman Beecher, take a job at the Lane Seminary, which was just right down the street, uh, you know, a place of the intelligentsia in, in Cincinnati, uh, radical thought in Ohio, uh, just a few blocks from where we were sitting here. Today, we asked uh, Christina, our guest, about the Lane Seminary and its importance in Harriet's life. So Lyman Beecher, Harriet's dad, was a famous Presbyterian minister. Not necessarily rich, but really famous and well-known. Most of her siblings, and she had 10 brothers and sisters, so most of her siblings were also either abolitionists or social reformers in some way. And the Lane Seminary, which was the reason why the Beecher family moved to Cincinnati, 
You know, you talk about why do people move across the country? What's one of those primary pull factors of migration? Well, Harriet's dad got a new job and he is now going to be the president of the Lane Theological Seminary, which is a Presbyterian training college out here in the West. John Brown was involved in a number of business ventures with family members uh, and on his own. You know, he was never very successful for long periods of time, a year or two here or there, but you know, multiple times he had to give up his house or declare bankruptcy, and he was hit really hard by the Panic of 1837. You know, and not to mention Brown had uh, 10, 12 kids. You know, uh, The Panic, though, of 1837 struck millions of Americans, really the first economic you know collapse here in this country the first nationwide financial panic but it certainly wouldn't be the last we talked with our guest uh gwendolyn meyer about john brown as a businessman well he was a gentleman that was very interested in economics um certainly he had learned the the leather tanning kind of business from his father he tried to start a business doing that he endeavored to get involved in land speculation um, he endeavored to get involved in sheep, in the sale of sheep and wool. Right. He also got into building. Um, people tend to think of him as unsuccessful, but you're also talking about the period of history when there was a lot of land speculation bloom and ultimately a, a pretty bad financial panic in our country in 1837. Yeah, and Brown kind of gets caught in all of this. And to say that he's completely unsuccessful, I think, is... It's accurate. However, I would also put a little footnote here and say that he was also trying in a time that was economically challenged, and certainly he had to suffer some of that economic challenge. Um, when he moves to Crawford, Pennsylvania, um, in the 1834, the Democrats in Crawford County, Pennsylvania, nominated this man to be the county auditor. And people don't often think of him as being involved in politics. And it's very interesting to me that it, given the fact that he already had political leanings and certainly um, a very strong opinion about uh, social issues, he actually declined the nomination as the county auditor. So he could have easily gone into politics and did not. So I, call him unsuccessful if you want, but I would not completely lay it at his feet. Part of it is the economic time period as well. We talk with Christina about where in Cincinnati Harriet Beecher Stowe lived. You know, the, the Stowe house, like we said, was really owned by her father, but she bounced around a little bit in Cincinnati. We talked to her about where Harriet Beecher Stowe lived while she was in the Queen City for almost 20 years. So when they first moved here, they mostly lived downtown with uh, Harriet's uncle, uh, who was a, a businessman here in Cincinnati. His name was Samuel Foote. And then... After that, she actually continued to live downtown for a couple of years because she was boarding close to the school that she and her sister Catherine had started. They had ran a girls' school back in Connecticut. When they come to Cincinnati, Harriet and Catherine start a girls' school here as well. And then she did live here in Walnut Hills at her dad's house for short periods of time. So the Beecher family home is located here in Walnut Hills, right next to the Lane Seminary. And then for her kind of longest stead, Harriet lived just on the other side of the seminary. So after she was married, she lived just down the street, meaning she's in and out of the family home very frequently. Harriet's living in Cincinnati as a teenager, uh, or, you know, in her early 20s, I should say. And we talked to Christina about just how does her life, you know, help lead her to becoming an abolitionist? Things that happen, you know, in Cincinnati, we talk about her, her path to the abolition movement. 
So the first big idea that goes along with that is that she did move to Cincinnati and now she's mixing and mingling with all of these different people. But then also she becomes more of an abolitionist based on the Lane Seminary debates. And the Lane debates were the first abolitionist debates in the United States. They took place at her father's college. Uh, the students there were actually debating two forms of anti-slavery, uh, abolition versus colonization. After they debate for 18 days, all the students decide they're gonna be abolitionists, and then they get in trouble with the trustees of the college who are the business community who don't want the controversy of them debating. So that's a whole nother story in terms of the freedom of speech issues that that entails. But Harriet kind of has a front row seat to looking and watching these debates and becomes more abolitionist based on that. She becomes a mother. She has seven children, six of them born here in Cincinnati, and one of them dies in a cholera epidemic. And when baby Charlie dies, he was just 18 months old. And when he dies, she really, she takes that on and says that she can feel the empathy towards slave mothers whose children are taken away from them to be sold because she's had that maternal loss. She feels empathy towards the slave mothers because of that. And that idea of separation from families, it just wrenches at her heart. Um, she's also what I call a friend of the Underground Railroad. So not participating directly, but she knows the people who are, she knows what's going on, she can write about it without giving away too many, you know, without giving away people's real names, that kind of thing. And then she also does a lot of research. I mean, most writers do research all the time. So back when she was a teacher, before she was married, she actually visited a slave farm in Kentucky. She didn't really talk about it at the time, but 20 years later, you open Uncle Tom's Cabin, the first chapter is set on a slave farm in Kentucky, very similar to where she visited. She saw a slave auction take place that was in Washington, Kentucky, and she saw a slave auction and she includes a slave auction in her book. So she's doing research probably before she even realizes that she's doing research. Cincinnati's always been a city with a complicated racial past. I mean, even as recent as the 2001, there were race riots in downtown Cincinnati. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's location on the Mason-Dixon line. You know, so our guest indicates this, uh, there were a number of race riots during Harriet's day. And this mob of anti-abolitionists uh, was actually the event that got Harriet Beecher Stowe uh, to become a published author. You're not going to believe this, but there were race riots in Cincinnati in 1836. And of course, people rolled their eyes like, of course there were. Mm -hmm. uh, why wouldn't I believe that? But really what comes out of it is what I call her first real political piece. So what happens is there is a newspaper guy named James Burney. He's publishing an abolitionist newspaper called The Philanthropist. Uh, the business community doesn't like that he's doing this here in Cincinnati. They break into his office trash it, grab the printing press, throw it in the Ohio River. So now you have mob violence in the streets. You've got that business community. The free black community comes to Bernie's aid, and now you've got rioting in the streets. Yeah. Harriet is not downtown at that point. She's actually up here in Walnut Hills. She's actually living in her father's house at that point because she's six months pregnant, and her husband is out of town on a business trip to Europe. So she writes a letter to the editor of a different newspaper here in town. And it's kind of set up as a short story where Harriet is the author of the piece. She's kind of portraying the man who's writing it called Franklin. 
And um, basically, she talks there about, you know, the Constitution guarantees freedom of speech. And even if you disagree with someone, that's no reason to beat them up in the street. Or even if you agree with the people who are doing the beating up, that doesn't give you the right to condone that kind of violence. So it's really kind of set up as a way to show that mob violence is not the answer, no matter what your position. Around that same time, in November of 1837, a minister and abolition newspaper publisher named Elijah Lovejoy was shot and killed by an angry mob in Alton, Illinois, just outside St. Louis. And Lovejoy is a pretty famous abolitionist and publisher. You know, while defending his printing press, he's killed. It was a huge deal in the abolition community where Lovejoy, like we said, was a leader. Brown and the other abolitionists in Hudson, Ohio, were called to a meeting at the Congregational Church. This famous meeting where Brown stands up for, for sla- against slavery. And he holds his hand up and he says, Here before God, in the presence of these witnesses, from this time I consecrate my life to the destruction of slavery. That's a watershed moment in Brown's life. It's always talked about in any history you read of his. In the history of the abolitionist movement, and it happens here in Ohio, in Hudson, at the Congregational Church. We talked to Gwen Meyer about that church and that proclamation. Hudson is very much a one-church town. We had the Congregational Church that David Hudson had helped found, and Owen Brown certainly was very active in that church. But at a point in 1837, members of the church, including Owen Brown, feel that the church is not taking a strong enough stance against um, slavery, and they literally split the Free Congregational Church and walk away, go a block to the south, and found the Free Congregational Church. Sometimes people refer to it as the Oberlin Church. Owen Brown is the father of this church, and you literally had to sign a loyalty oath that you were against slavery to join this church. And that's where John Brown makes his very famous proclamation to dedicate his life to defeating slavery. can't talk about the abolition movement or slavery here in the United States or in Ohio without talking about the Underground Railroad. And we did an episode uh, about the Underground Railroad last year. Uh, we'd ask you to go back and listen to that Ohio versus uh, slavery. Uh, a really interesting episode uh, when we were in Columbus and up in Worcester, Ohio. Uh, but Harry Beecher Stowe, she was not active in, in the Underground Railroad. Uh, but she was kind of like Underground Railroad adjacent. She knew a guy named Levi Coffin. He's known as the president of the Underground Railroad. Some 3,000 fugitive slaves you know, are said to have passed through his care, and he lived in Cincinnati, him and his wife. And, and all this stuff, you know, she's knowing these people and knowing about the Underground Railroad, it all makes it into her famous book years later, Uncle Tom's Cabin. We talked to uh, our guest about the Underground Railroad and Harriet Beecher Stowe's life. The Rankin family out in Ripley, they are also Presbyterian ministers, Harriet's very familiar with the family. She goes out and spends time in Ripley. She visits with them. They tell her stories about actual people that they have assisted. And she takes one of those stories, the story of Eliza, who crosses the frozen Ohio River with her baby in her arms, makes it to safety. She takes that true story and puts it as an episode in her book. She also has knowledge of Catherine and Levi Coffin, 
who are Quakers who started out in Indiana, but then moved to Cincinnati and lived at one point about a half a mile from here. So she was familiar with them. And one of the incidences in the book where it's talking about a Quaker village is really kind of modeled after Catherine and Levi Coffin. She also, because she's busy with kids and taking care of house and writing, she's a very busy woman. So she always employs kitchen help. Sometimes it's a German-American immigrant woman, and sometimes it's a free black woman. At one point, she thought it was a free black woman, but actually the woman didn't have any papers. The master came to town looking for her, and so Harriet had her husband and one of her brothers take the woman to a nearby Underground Railroad house, the John Van Zandt house. So all of these incidents indicate that she knows and is aware of what's going on with the Underground Railroad, and she's able to write about that in her book without giving away real names. As we move into the 1850s, this turbulent decade uh, before the Civil War, it begins with something called the Compromise of 1850. You know, this is following the Mexican War. We add all these territories, uh, and the slavery question is becoming a big issue as these territories and states are entering the Union. Uh, you know, we're talking about the acquisition of California becomes a state in 1850. Uh, the modern Western United States as we know it. You know, the state of California was admitted as a free state. But the Compromise of 1850 also created the Fugitive Slave Law. This punitive law that you know, penalizes uh, with jail and a fine any person quartering a fugitive slave. It rewarded law enforcement for returning and capturing fugitive slaves. And it drove a giant wedge between the North and the South. Harry Beecher Stowe was enraged by the passing of this law. She outlines the horrors of recapturing escaped slaves in her writings. You know, she's working on this new book. We talked to our, our guest, Gwen Meyer, our, our guest, Christina Hartlib, just about the fugitive slave law and its effect on Harry Beecher Stowe's writings. But then when you get to the Fugitive Slave Act, you know, there's a tie-in with John Van Zandt in terms of, you know, after she had moved away and he had helped the woman that she sent to him, he does get arrested under the Fugitive Slave Act, is defended by Sam and Chase, and he does not win in court. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's one incident of the Fugitive Slave Act in mm -hmm. Cincinnati and what happens with that. But, you know, also several of the Lane students were kind of involved in these clandestine activities. Um, there is some evidence that she did shelter a fugitive for at least a night after she moved to Maine because she was so incensed by this law. In 1854, the hot-button issue of slavery forced another Compromise Act by the Congress. This was called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. It was drafted by Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas from Illinois, and it allowed the people of those new territories, Kansas and Nebraska, to decide whether or not to allow slavery popular sovereignty, as it's called, uh, meaning, you know, they could vote whether or not they wanted to be a free state or a slave state. But what it does is it further inflames the slavery problem because militias, um, you know, over pro-slavery and anti-slavery men, they pour into Kansas and a war begins among American citizens. It became known as Bleeding Kansas. Uh, this is really the first series of battles, honestly, of the Civil War, some five or six years before the actual firing on Fort Sumter. Congress in the 1850s was light years more contentious and gridlocked and partisan than our current Congress. Uh, there's a great book, a new book out called The Field of Blood, Violence in Congress and the Road to Civil War uh, about this 1850s time period on Capitol Hill. 
uh, in the lead up to war. For example, you know, this would play a role in John Brown's criminal and murderous actions in, in Bleeding Kansas. Our guest Dennis Fry joins us to talk about uh, John Brown's times. That's a, you know, really his first violent acts uh, of, in the, of the anti-slavery movement. And this famous moment in the Congress on May 22nd, 1856, the floor of the Senate, a congressman named Preston Brooks from South Carolina attacks Massachusetts Senator Charles Sumner. Sumner, an anti-slavery man of the highest order, had disparaged uh, Congressman Brooks's cousin in a speech earlier in the week. His cousin was a pro-slavery senator from the Palmetto State. And Brooks, this South Carolina congressman, walks up to Sumner seated at his desk and begins beating him with his gold-tipped cane. He beats him within you know, an inch of his life. Sumner would not be able to take his seat in the Senate due to those injuries for three years. And Brooks was able to be, avoid being removed, but he resigns from the Congress. And, he only, and next thing you know, he gets elected, re-elected, uh, and he's back in Washington a month later. And the people in the South hailed him uh, and, and sent him canes in the mail. And people in the North, for the first time, were seeing that maybe the Civil War might be necessary. I mean, think of this happened today. I'm not saying it, it couldn't, but, I mean, if we almost had a near murder on the floor of the Senate. Uh, and we talked to Dennis Fry, our guest, about John Brown and his militia going to Bleeding Kansas to support the anti-slavery folks, he hears about Sumner's caning. He's irate and he uses violence to protest violence uh, in a massacre near the Pottawatomie Creek in eastern Kansas. Brown probably, by the time he came to Harper's Ferry, is the most famous abolitionist in the United States. But there's one difference between him and fellow abolitionists who also were of great fame. Uh, and that is that Brown believed in the violent overthrow of slavery. The United States Constitution, with its first three words, we the people, uh, Brown believed that uh, the African-American who was the slave should not be considered property, but be part of we the people. So his modus operandi was violence, uh, the violent overthrow of uh, the slave system, the slave oligarchy, the slave existence. So he went to Kansas to ensure that slavery would not be extended into Kansas territory. He would go there as an anti-slavery uh, guerrilla fighter. He would organize his own company of militia known as the Liberty Guards, and they would be principally based in uh, southeastern Kansas. We're known for three principal actions. First of all, what's known as the Pottawatomie Massacre. This occurred in May, late May of 1856. The town of Lawrence, Kansas, had just been sacked by pro-slavery forces, burned, destroyed. This was a hotbed of anti-slavery sentiment. It was kind of the center of, of the anti-slavery movement in Kansas. And the pro-slavery people just wiped it out. Brown was furious. And only a few days before Pottawatomie, uh, Brown had learned of the uh, famous incident in the Congress where the South Carolina congressman had uh, caned uh, a United States senator from Massachusetts. Brown decided vengeance was necessary. Retribution was required. So he and four of his sons and several other men formed, in essence, a posse and went looking for anyone they thought might be pro-slavery in the vicinity of Pottawatomie Creek in eastern Kansas. That night, well, over a course of two nights, they killed five men, uh, butchered, literally, uh, hacked to death with broadswords. 
Brown accomplished his mission, which was to send a message to every pro-slavery man, woman, and child living in Kansas that this could happen to you, that we could arrive at your cabin one night, and that you the next day would be nothing but blood and bones. By August, he's in a fight at Osawatomie where he's badly outnumbered uh, and uh, puts a pretty good whipping on the enemy, the pro-slavery forces, even though he was outnumbered. So he became almost a mythical figure, hence the name Osawatomie Brown. John Brown is a kind of a national name now, but he lays low after these killings. He comes back to Ohio. He's living in, in Massachusetts in Springfield, Mass., and becomes one of the most famous abolitionists after Kansas. He's uncompromised, and he believed he was taking orders from God to bring about the end of slavery. We talked to Dennis Fry from Harper's Ferry uh, just about that source. You know, what was Brown's inspiration? Did he really believe that he was on a mission from God? Yes, Brown believed that God had chosen him, that God had selected him, that God wanted him, placed him here on earth as his instrument to rid this nation of slavery. Uh, Brown read the Bible daily, numerous times a day. Uh, he had favorite passages that he would asterisk or underline or circle uh, in his family Bible. We know that because uh, the National Park Service actually owns John Brown's family Bible and has it on display at Harpers Ferry National Park. Um, and so Brown believed God would lead him, God would direct him, uh, God would assist him with his plan. And uh, he was convinced that with God with him, no one else could stand against him. Our trip to the Hudson Library and, and Historical Center is pretty awesome. Gwen Meyer showed us their John Brown collection. They've got one of the most extensive and, and best collections of artifacts and his writings in, in the entire country. And we talked to her about the collection and, and Hudson's status as the hometown of John Brown. We have the second or third largest manuscript collection in the United States with regard to John Brown because essentially we were his hometown. Um, there are family members that yet remain in the community today. There is a marker over by what is the structure, the remnants of the structure of the Free Congo Church that is that notes his life. Um, so I would tell you institutionally, the walking tours, the collection, the community, I mean, he, he's known in Hudson as being from Hudson. We have multiple original letters by him. Our letters that we own are from Kansas back to Hudson. Um, during that time period. My favorite pieces in the collection happen to be his leather making tools, which we have, and it, from time to time we have loaned to the National Freedom Center in Cincinnati. We have pieces of the scaffolding, we have pieces of leather that he actually tanned, we have a piece of his coat, and I believe we have a lock of his hair. In addition to 100, 150 boxes of materials that all relate to him. Like we said, Harriet Beatrice, though she's furious about the compromise of 1850, the Fugitive Slave Law, and she begins writing uh, what will become Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, we asked Christina Hartley of the Stowe House in Cincinnati about the process that leads her to writing one of the all-time classic pieces of American literature. You know, it's 1850. Harriet's mad about the Fugitive Slave Act. She's like, oh, I got to do something. What can I do? I, 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 just, I got to do something. 
but it's 1850 and she's a woman. So what can she do really? Well, one of her sister-in-laws writes her a letter and says, you know, Harriet, if I could write like you do, I would probably write and tell people how horrible slavery really is. And she's like, that's a great idea. That's what I'm gonna do. So she has a vision of what happens to Uncle Tom at the end of the book while she's at church. She goes home, she writes it all down. She starts showing it to her kids who are the oldest ones are teenagers by this point. And they're like, you gotta keep going. So then she writes a letter to the editor of an abolitionist newspaper that she's published in before called the National Era. And she writes to Gamaliel Bailey and she says, I feel like the time has come when even a woman or a child who can speak a word for freedom and humanity is bound to speak. I've got a new story for you. I think it's gonna be in about four parts. Will you publish it? He says, sure. Well, then it ends up being in 40 parts right. and published a chapter a week for almost a year. And after it gets published in serialized form, then it's bound into a book and is an immediate bestseller. But just that act of publishing once a week really gets people on board and excited. And you know, you're reading your copy of The National Era, you get to the end of the chapter, and then you're like, well, then what happens? Yeah, it's like a, and you have like to a TV program cliffhanger or something. I, I tell the students that we get, I tell them it's how we used to watch TV, <laughs> but now you don't do that because you just binge watch. Right. Well, reading the book is like binge watching. Sorry for some spoilers here, but we asked Christina to kind of give us the plot of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, you probably lied and, and told your eighth grade English teacher that you'd already read this, but there really can't be any spoiler shaming after 170 years. But we asked Christina just to give us the Cliff Notes version of Harry Beecher Stowe's classic anti-slavery novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. It starts on a farm in Kentucky. The master is low on cash. He's like, I gotta raise cash. I'm gonna have to sell some of my people. Okay, so he ends up selling two of his slaves. He sells Uncle Tom, who is the, uh, unlike our modern day vision of Uncle Tom, Uncle Tom is really like late 30s, early 40s, the strongest, the smartest, the best guy on the plantation. And so he sells Uncle Tom because he's gonna get a lot of money from him. And he also sells little a little boy named Harry because he's trained Harry to perform tricks and the, the slave, uh, dealer who comes through the farm sees this and he's like, oh, I'll take that one too. And so the master sells two of his slaves and that sets up the two plot lines because Harry's mother overhears the conversation. Eliza, Harry's mother, and Harry escape and then use the Underground Railroad and make it to Canada. So that's one plot line is through the Underground Railroad and making it to Canada, and that way people see that trail, so to speak. Not the specific trail, but they right. see that that's going on. And then the other storyline is Tom, who's getting sold further and further south and showing up in worse and worse conditions. And so it really describes the in inhumanity of the slavery system and shows what's really going on. And then by the end, the stories both kind of tie back together. But that character of Uncle Tom really is a kind of a description of, he's not the way modern people think of him. He's not written in the way that he is kind of portrayed today or thought about today. Uh, you know, a lot of people think of Uncle Tom as an insult. And really the way the character was written was that he was the most uh, gracious 
and Christian man who was doing what was right for his family. Because if he didn't allow himself to get sold, he was afraid the master was going to sell his own wife and kids. John Brown was a celebrity in the abolition world, but he, and he had famous friends. He's very close to Frederick Douglass. He knew Harriet Tubman as well. You know, where are we, by the way, on that Harriet Tubman is supposed to go on the $20 bill and, and you know, the play Hamilton seems to kind of stop that. But we're an Ohio history show, so we got to focus on the Ohio natives. Uh, they were amazing abolitionists of all races. Uh, we happen to be profiling two white Ohio natives today, but you can't ever forget about Frederick Douglass and the contributions of Harriet Tubman. Uh, and John Brown knew them both. So, you know, you can go back and listen to, like we said, our Underground Railroad episode uh, talks about some of these people in a little more detail. But we asked Dennis Fry about his relationship with these two anti-slavery giants. Well, there was one peculiarity about Brown. He's a white man who wanted to come into the South and free African Americans from enslavement. This was not Nat Turner, who was a slave himself and had conducted his own slave uprising uh, in 1831 in Virginia. And so slave uprisings in the South actually were the greatest fear of a Southerner. Brown himself recognized that a white man coming into the South to free slaves might even be suspicious for the slaves, and that perhaps they would not rise and follow a white man to freedom, uh, unlike perhaps they would a Harriet Tubman or a Frederick Douglass. And so he befriended both of them. Uh, He referred to Harriet Tubman as his general. Tubman ultimately would learn of Brown's plans, but not be available to join him. Frederick Douglass was intimately familiar with Brown's plan. Douglass and Brown were confidants, close. They wrote frequently to each other. They had a final meeting in 1859 in a quarry outside of Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, where Brown had established his headquarters for his war on slavery. And in that quarry meeting in August of 1859, Brown asked Douglas to join him. He laid out the plan specifically, timetable specifically, and said, I need you. I want you. You must join me. Douglas refused, not because he didn't believe in Brown, but he wasn't convinced that Brown's plan would succeed. Douglas would later state that he denied joining Brown because he thought Brown's attack, forthcoming attack on Harper's Ferry would be into a, and he used the words, perfect steel trap. Around the time of his famous meetup in the quarry in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, uh, John Brown's camped outside of Sharpsburg, Maryland. It's about 10 miles from the U.S. Armory at, at Harper's Ferry, a place called the Kennedy Farm. He's on the other side of the, you know, the other side of the Potomac is where Harper's Ferry is. He has a force of 22 men, and he's making the final plans, uh, you know, to invade this federal installation. Dennis Fry was the chief historian at Harper's Ferry National Park for 20 years. He recently wrote a, a book, Confluence, uh, which we'll discuss with him at the end of the show, a history of Harper's Ferry. But we asked Dennis Fry, you know, just about the armory at Harper's Ferry and why it was chosen by John Brown, and originally chosen as the armory by George Washington. Harpers Ferry is located upstream from Washington, D.C., 61 miles along the Potomac River. Uh, At the time of John Brown, if you were going to walk that distance uh, or use a horse and wagon, it would probably take you about two and a half to three days. And so uh, Washington 
requested that the Congress uh, join in establishing U.S. armories and arsenals so that the United States could produce its own weaponry for self-defense. One of those locations chosen by Washington for an armory and arsenal was Harpers Ferry, Virginia. It became known as the Southern Armory based on the Potomac. So by 1800, uh, soon after Washington had died, uh, we were actually producing small arms, uh, rifles and muskets in Harpers Ferry. Ultimately, between the time Thomas Jefferson became president and the time Lincoln became president, when the armory and arsenal would be destroyed, uh, they manufactured there at Harpers Ferry over 600,000 rifles and muskets. Again, we had such an awesome time interviewing uh, Dennis Fry and all our guests, but Dennis was, was just a, a treat. We talked for well over an hour about Harper's Ferry and John Brown. Uh, and, John, and John Brown, in October 1859, he makes his final preparations um, for war with the United States. But Dennis likes to call it war. It's, not, he, it's always called John Brown's Raid. Even on my Trapper Keeper note, it was called John Brown's Raid. But he says it really should be called John Brown's War. I, I really get kind of ticked off when I hear people call it John Brown's raid. Yeah. Raid is inappropriate. It's not a raid. John Brown flips in his grave every time he hears somebody <laughs> use the word raid. It is war. He is declaring war against the United States. He has his own constitution, the Chatham Constitution, created in Chatham, Canada, that creates a new nation in the South where all people, regardless of their, their skin color, will live in freedom. An interesting thing about Brown's Constitution is that it dissolves once the United States eliminates slavery. So again, it's not based on his ego. It's based on this, this mission mm-hmm. of uh, God has chosen me to eradicate this land of the free of slavery. And so... Uh, He comes to Harper's Ferry solely for one purpose. He needs weapons. Indeed, there are 100,000 there. He doesn't need 100,000 weapons. He only needs a few thousand. Uh, If he were able to seize 2,000, 3,000 rifles from Harper's Ferry, he is well on his way to creating a guerrilla war against his United States. During these 1850s, as we close in on John Brown's uh, war here at Harper's Ferry, we have to go back and talk about just how popular Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin was. And it sells more than any fiction book of the 19th century. It was an international bestseller. You know, it's a huge deal. And there's no TV. There's no movies. You know, books were a big deal. Books were entertainment. You know, and this book was incredibly important. And it began to change minds. We talk with our guest, Christina Hartley just about how popular Uncle Tom's Cabin was. A million and a half in the first year in Britain. Wow. So uh, when it was published in book form here in the United States, there was 10,000 copies sold in the first week. By the end of the year, it was 300,000 copies. Like uh, in Britain, it was over a million and a half. And really Britain was very involved in terms of, you know, wanting to end slavery at this point because they had already outlawed slavery in 1833. So they kind of saw it, I think, as why aren't the Americans catching up with us? 
but then it was also published in dozens of languages. And we have international visitors here today, here at the house, who come in and they're, you know, they're excited to learn about Harriet and learn about her time in Cincinnati, but they also have told me on, you know, not, many different people have told me that they read it in school, you know, from where, wherever country they, they grew up in, they read it in school and that's how they learned about American slavery. So it's still being taught in schools around the world and still kind of used as a, a kind of text on what American slavery was like. Uncle Tom's Cabin had an effect on the minds of millions of Americans. You know, in 1857, after the book's out, uh, there's probably the Supreme Court's worst decision. It comes out of nowhere and Chief Justice in all-time racist, Roger Taney, drops his trademark landmark decision in the Dred Scott case. And it alters the status of every African-American. March 7, 1957, the day of this fateful decision. Uh, Missouri slave, Dred Scott, he wanted to be set free. He, he sues. He's taken to Wisconsin where slavery was illegal by his master. And he, decla- you know, and he sues to say that he's a, now a free man. Um, and basically, the decision Congress has, you know, this is the decision. Congress has no authority to prevent the spread of, of slavery to the territories. And he writes that blacks had no rights that a white man was bound to respect. Basically, any free black could be lawfully enslaved. There's a potential to make slavery legal everywhere, this decision. And it's in this backdrop, uh, these types of huge news stories of the 1850s, that people are reading Uncle Tom's Cabin and discovering for themselves just how bad slavery had become. Not to mention that you know, the South also was accelerating the trafficking of African slaves you know, through the Caribbean and Cuba, um, and bringing them you know, to, to ports secretly in the United States, more and more Africans were being unsafely sailed across the Atlantic. Conditions are horrible. Uh, you know, many would die just on, on the trip. Um, you know, the press is talking about these types of things. But we asked Christina Hartley, you know, why did Uncle Tom's Cabin become so popular in the North? You know, in the 1850s, m- most Northerners were not abolitionists. You know, you think about you know, that slavery thing, it happens down in the South, it doesn't affect me, why should I worry about it? That was the mindset of most people. And so reading Uncle Tom's Cabin and seeing those inhumane conditions and seeing how eager people were to get away from that system, that is what really opens their eyes to what slavery was really like. And so it's a shift in public opinion. It's using the media form of the day, literature, to shift public opinion and make people think differently. John Brown was still often in Hudson, Ohio, Northeast Ohio, throughout his adult life. His family, including his dad, Owen Brown, remained in the area. Um, and we asked Gwendolyn Meyer you know, about his final trip to Hudson. John Brown makes one last trip to Hudson in 1859, just before his raid on Harper's Ferry multiple trips and constantly writing letters, constantly returning to the community to see both family and friends and to get um, resources here. Um, The raid in Harper's Ferry is October of 1859. We know for a fact that he was here in the spring of 1859. Um, Beyond that, we're not sure, but I can definitely tell you by the spring of 1859, he's here and by October, the raid in Harper's Ferry happens. I would have had a footnote here that the guns for Harper's Ferry that were used at Harper's Ferry were stored here in Hudson. So that gives you some idea that that he is coming through here very regularly and certainly right before Harper's Ferry. On October 16th, 1859, 
John Brown and his 17 men, including two of his sons, launched a midnight attack on Harper's Ferry. Brown had sent John Cook, one of the, the band members, to the Harper's Ferry area long before to live, surveil the community, uh, and surveil the armory. Uh, Cook actually becomes a very well-liked member of the community. He's, I think he's married. He has a, a kid on the way from someone he met while he's surveilling the town. Um, but he would lead the party that went out to take hostages and free slaves that first night. Uh, and he takes a, a prisoner. We talked to Dennis Fry. He even takes a, a prisoner that was related to one of the founders of the United States. He went out into the Jefferson County community after midnight on October the 16th, 17th, first to the home of Lewis Washington, great-grandnephew of George Washington, seized him as a hostage, also captured a couple of family heirlooms that George Washington had owned, and he also went to the Allstott farm and captured John Allstott and John Jr. Um, Allstott was an estate owner along the principal way between Harpers Ferry and Charlestown, the Turnpike. So these two men became his first hostages. They also, when they were at the estate of Washington and the estate of Allstott, slaves were brought with Cook and his raiding party. Right. What we don't know today is this. Did the slaves come voluntarily? Were they aware? Were they co-conspirators? Did they come to join Brown to fight for their freedom? We don't know the answers to those questions. Or, as was maintained by the Southern aristocracy, the slave oligarchy, no, 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 no. These people were forced. All these slaves were forced to join Brown. None of them did it on their own volition. Unfortunately, the reason we do not know the answer to the questions I pose is because the slaves were not given an opportunity after this attack ended, to answer those questions. The beginning of John Brown's war, John Brown's raid, is a success. The armory's captured, slaves are freed, uh, hostages are taken and brought to the facility. Uh, but almost immediately after that, it, it does start to go wrong. Nothing to me indicates the failed nature of this attack more than, you know, it's inspired by a plan to start an armed rebellion of southern black slaves. The, the fact that the first person killed by John Brown's raiding party was a free black man. We talked to Dennis Fry about this sad and ironic first casualty of John Brown's war. He worked for the railroad. He was a baggage porter. His name was Shepard, Hayward Shepard. I have to put the word free black in quotation marks because no African American who lived in the South was truly free. Mm-hmm. Even a free black had to have a white sponsor a free black had to have papers on him or her all the time indicating who the sponsor was and where they were going. Traveling papers were required. Permission was required for them to go anywhere. And so the only difference between a free black and a slave was that the free black was not owned by someone and could have work where they could earn an income. And so Shepard that night, working for the railroad, uh, wandered out to try to determine why a train had stopped before it reached the station. He was there confronted by two of Brown's men. He stunned and surprised. He ran. 
Um, and Brown's men ordered him to halt not once but twice. He was so frightened he continued to run toward the train, which would have been a sanctuary, a place of safety, and Brown's men, two of them, raised their weapons and shot him. And so Hayward Shepard uh, would be the first to die in John Brown's raid to free the slaves. It doesn't take long for the United States military to respond to the attack. Your word gets out and gets all the way to the White House um, much faster than I think John Brown had hoped. We talked to Dennis Fry about the U.S. Marine response to the attack on Harper's Ferry. The United States Marines soon will be called into action because the President of the United States is informed. Um, the telegraph lines at Harper's Ferry were cut by Brown's men. But eventually, the passenger train that had been stopped is allowed to proceed. When it gets to a point where it can telegraph, uh, it does, and it sends word to Baltimore that Harper's Ferry has been captured by abolitionists. Um, word gets to the president of the B&O Railroad, and he sends a message to the president of the United States, James Buchanan, and Buchanan then orders United States Marines rapidly to Harper's Ferry to uh, end this attack against federal property. Half of John Brown's uh, raiding party is dead or dying after the first 24 hours. The people of this Jefferson County area and Charlestown, the nearby towns, they did not back down. You know, open shooting battles are going on throughout the day and the night of October 17th. And this is before, you know, the U.S. Marines even show up. People are dying. We talked to Dennis about the town's response and the battle that begins at Harper's Ferry. Uh, The Harper's Ferry residents were angry and they felt that they literally they were on the front end of a war uh their town has been invaded um and uh local citizens have been killed the mayor has been killed uh during this during this uh war and so no quarter basically no quarter by the town citizens on anyone who was affiliated with brown and so two of his sons uh watson and Oliver will indeed be mortally wounded um, there by the engine house. Both of them will die at Brown's feet inside the fire engine house. And the Marines do show up, and they're led by a colonel named Robert E. Lee. Also there, future Confederate General Jeb Stewart. They would arrive quickly, and the Marines would descend upon the engine house, where Brown and his remaining men are trapped and preparing to fight, fight for the death. The hostages are in there as well. On October 18th, two days after the attack began, John Brown's armed insurrection will come to an end. Well, first of all, remember that Brown and about four of his men are still fighting like rattlesnakes inside the engine house. And also keep in mind that Brown had seized uh, a dozen hostages, uh, now down to 11. One uh, no longer was there, it had not been harmed, but now down to 11 hostages. And so Lee was very concerned that any assault on the engine house could result in the uh, possible death of the hostages at the hands of Brown and his men or by uh, a stray bullet uh, fired from a Marine rifle. And so Lee ordered the Marines to assault the building with a bayonet charge only. Bayonets, no bullets. Very dangerous. The Marines basically pierce a door and put a hole in it big enough for one Marine at a time to squeeze in there. One Marine at a time. 
uh, a highly hazardous uh, operation. The first man through, Lieutenant Green. He will crawl through a hole in the door by himself, armed only with his saber, and uh, Green lunges at Osawatomie, John Brown. He intended, with his saber thrust, right in the gut, to kill Brown. Not to capture him, not to hurt him, not to wound him, kill him. He hit him hard. Interesting enough, when Green looked at his sword, no blood on the sword, not a drop of blood. And in fact, he discovered his sword had not even penetrated Brown's body, despite a direct blow. His sword had struck either a belt plate or a breastplate that Brown was wearing. The sword bounced off of Brown. Now, John Brown would tell you that was the hand of God, Mm. that it was not time, God was not finished with Brown, and that God's hand had prevented that thrust from penetrating his body. I like to tell people this is when history comes down to a quarter of an inch. Quarter of an inch. If that sword blade had been a quarter of an inch higher or lower, or a quarter of an inch to the right or left, Brown is a dead man. Sixteen people would die at the Harper's Ferry battle. Ten of them were Brown's men. Brown himself was captured quickly, and I mean quickly, tried uh, in a nearby courtroom. But it's here that Brown would make, you know, really start to have his biggest effect on the slavery question is after he's captured. He makes an extemporaneous speech after the trial, um, and he begins crafting, you know, his, his narrative through the media and becomes really a martyr for the, anti, the anti-slavery movement, which now has taken over the North and become an obsession. Brown's raid was an obsession with people in the South. Harper's Ferry is not in West Virginia in 1859. It is Virginia. West Virginia doesn't exist. There's no such thing as the state of West Virginia until the middle of the Civil War, 1863. So all this is happening in Virginia, the old Dominion. Uh, he's taken to Jefferson County, and as you mentioned, uh, very quickly, uh, circuit court is called into session, and uh, he will be found guilty of uh, three capital offenses. Murder, as I mentioned, uh, people, civilians in the town had been killed, including the mayor. Treason. Um, The Chatham Constitution was discovered, and... uh, the court was convinced that that was treason. And thirdly, inciting slave rebellion. Uh, Brown himself uh, was disappointed uh, that he did not have uh, a large number of slaves join him, uh, but he was found guilty of inciting slave rebellion. All three of those offenses at the time were considered for death, death penalty, and on November the 2nd. Now remember, Brown is captured on October the 18th. So literally, about two weeks after his capture, only two weeks after his capture, he has been tried, found guilty, and now his sentence will be read on November the 2nd. And uh, Judge Richard Parker, himself a large slave owner and slave trader in Virginia, uh, would pronounce the sentence. Uh, The sentence was death by hanging, uh, and that would occur... 30 days hence on December the 2nd, 1859. John Brown is sentenced to death. It's the biggest story in the North, uh, and it's really a crazy story in the South. The South has almost like a 
similar reaction to what we had 9-11, a shocking invasion of our sovereign land. We asked Dennis Fry to recount that day, December 2nd, 1859, in Charlestown, Virginia. John Brown was executed. Well, it does occur on December the 2nd. 2,000 Virginia militia gathered around Brown's scaffold. They were afraid there would be an attempt to free Brown. So afraid, in fact, that artillery was called in to guard all approaches to Charlestown. The man in charge of that artillery, Thomas Jonathan Jackson from the Virginia Military Institute. John Wilkes Booth was there. Wilkes Booth had arrived as part of the Richmond contingent of militia, and he witnessed the John Brown execution. I think it's interesting that, although not of the same fame as Booth or Jackson, perhaps the most famous words uttered at the execution came from J.T.L. Preston of the Virginia Military Institute. Right. He was in charge of the VMI contingent there that day, and upon his execution, once Brown had the trap door open and he is swaying at the end of a rope, J.T.L. Preston's voice would ring out, and I quote, So perish all such enemies of Virginia, all such enemies of the Union, all such foes of the human race. Those words echo across that open field on that cold December morning and were heard by not the public, no public allowed, but certainly by hundreds if not several thousands of those Virginia militia who witnessed John Brown's execution. gathering of the Virginia militia, uh, I believe since the War of 1812, Dennis said. Brown's war would lead to the creation of hundreds of militia groups in the South. The South would begin arming itself because of John Brown's raid. John Brown wasn't allowed to speak at his execution, but his final words are later published and they are prophetic. They're very famous still to this day. Uh, John Brown had sparked a civil war and just before he died, he saw it was coming. He becomes a martyr for the North, an icon for the Union during the war. The immensely popular song, John Brown's Body, would be an anthem for the Union Army. But we asked Dennis Fry about John Brown's famous final words. So the day Brown is about to be executed, he will give his final note through the jailer. And the jailer's pretty busy right now. He's got an execution to help supervise. But after Brown's death, the jailer will recall that he had been given a note, and he will open it, and he will be the first human to witness Brown's final words. And this is what it says. It's very simple and short. I, John Brown, am now quite certain that the crimes of this guilty land will never be purged away, but with blood. Brown was right. 600,000 Americans would be killed in the Civil War. The deadliest war in U.S. history. Four years of blood and sacrifice. As we finished our discussion with Gwendolyn Meyer of the Hudson, Ohio Historical Society, we asked her why it's important to have students still study John Brown. And, And also she talked about his importance in American history. I think John Brown was probably our first transcontinental activist. Yeah. He really um, harnessed the powers of the press, of propaganda, of the railroad. He got around the world, and he certainly had a message that he was trying to deliver to the world. 
I think that the study of history and the study of this one individual who was well-intended but perhaps misguided, um, history and the study of them sort of enhance our idea of community. It sort of enhances our idea of identity. Um, certainly history has a lot to teach us about humility, about courage, about hope, about wisdom. I, I think that John um, deserves to be remembered essentially as a martyr for the cause. His life is worth studying. Um, many people credit him with being the spark that sort of lit the Civil War. And to some degree, I believe that's true. And if that's the case, then we need to sort of understand his involvement in that Civil War so that we can prohibit future wars. The way that I learned about Dennis Fry is I, I started seeing him on shows on the History Channel, and we saw him on a CSAM special last year where he argued that Brown is responsible for Lincoln's election in 1860. It's hard to argue the fact that, you know, as we ask Dennis Fry, did John Brown's raid in fact elect Abraham Lincoln? It's highly unlikely that any Republican candidate would have been elected in 1860 without the ghost of John Brown hovering over that election. It is literally the ghost of Brown that is on the tongues and minds of voters both north and south. Now, you have to remember, of course, a voter at that time is only a white male who owns property. It's not the population. It's a white male that's a property owner. But no one could avoid John Brown in 1860. He was a topic of conversation a hot political potato, even though he's dead and been dead for months. So much is a division caused by Brown. It results literally in a split of the Democratic Party. If the Democratic Party had been unified in 1860, it, in my judgment, is unlikely the upstart Republican Party would have won that election. Uh, the South would have been united in favor of a Democratic candidate and many moderates in the Midwest and in the Mid-Atlantic would have supported a Democratic candidate. Republican candidate probably would have gotten the votes, certainly of New England, New York State, uh, the upper Northeast, no question, but probably not enough votes to carry the Electoral College. John Brown was so divisive as a dead man that the Democratic Party divides in essence, over John Brown and the issue of slavery. And the Democratic Party puts up two candidates, a Southern candidate and a Northern candidate. And as a result of that division, it permits the Republicans to get enough Electoral College votes to win in 1860. Lincoln did not have a majority, not anywhere close to a majority. But because of the Democrats' division, Lincoln ascends uh, into the White House. As the war begins, there's this famous story about Harriet Beecher Stowe and her meeting with President Lincoln in 1862 at the White House. And this is in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, and whether he said it or not, th there is some truth to the statement. We talked to uh, our guest, Christina Hartley, the executive director of the Stowe House in Cincinnati, about Harriet and Lincoln's meeting. And did it really happen? It, it's more myth than actual, but what happens is, you know, it's the end of 1862. Harriet's visiting Washington, D.C. First, she goes to visit her son, Fred, who is a Union Army soldier stationed in the Capitol. She also goes to visit uh, some 
uh, fugitive slaves, or, well, uh, contraband you know, soldiers who are, you know, had been slaves and are now in the Union Army. She visits them. Uh, then she, by this time, of course, she's famous, so she uh, calls on the White House because Mrs. Inv uh, Lincoln has invited her to come visit for tea sometime. So she goes to the White House. Um, what transpires there is, you know, not necessarily, we don't know for sure, but that's when the president supposedly said, so you're the little lady that wrote the book that started this great big war. Does one person start a war? Well, no, but she's what started people thinking about the issue of slavery in a different way. And so she gets people thinking. So whether he actually said it or not, the sentiment is that one person or one voice can get people to start thinking differently. And that's what causes big social and political changes. Harriet would kind of retreat from public life in her later years, but she would live all the way until 1896, some 30 years after the war ended at the age of 85. Thanks again so much to our guests. We close with Dennis Fry, you know, one of my favorite interviews we've had since we started this pod. Spent well over an hour talking and you know, had to cut way too much time from that just to, just to try and fit it in. But, you know, it's interviews like this that kind of make us want to start a premium podcast or something where we can just let you listen to the entire interviews. Um, we have no plans to make you pay. Uh, I very much doubt we'll ever do something like that. Uh, but interviews like Dennis and all of our you know, guests, it's a shame that we can't share more of their expertise and their insight. Uh, we close with Dennis Fry talking about John Brown's lasting legacy. It's a pleasure to uh, conduct this interview with you, Alex. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. It's a great story. It's a story that's tragic. It's also a story full of hope. John Brown, as the song says, his soul goes marching on. And even 160 years after the attack on Harper's Ferry and his execution, John Brown is one of the few Americans who continues to march in the soul of all Americans. Our book recommendation today is Confluence, Harper's Ferry is Destiny by our guest, Dennis Fry. Uh, you can get that by going to harpersferryhistory.org. Again, harpersferryhistory.org. All that money uh, does go back to the, the Harper's Ferry National Park, uh, which is pretty cool. Confluence, Harper's Ferry is Destiny. Many, many primary sources never before published. Uh, even if you think you know a lot about Harper's Ferry, my purpose in this book was to show you how much you don't know about Harpers Ferry. Um, I worked there for 32 years oh, wow. and uh, 20 years as chief historian. That's great. I've been out there not since I was probably a teenager. My parents definitely took me out there on a, a trip to the Outer Banks here from Columbus to the Outer Banks. So mm -hmm. I, I, I've been there and maybe, maybe even met you when I was a kid. That's very possible. I was there a long time. <laughs> And we had, we had asked him about where we could get that book and asked him if it was on Amazon. He said, no, the book's not available on Amazon. Um, you know, there's a link in the show notes to how to buy his book. Again, Confluence, uh, we bought it. It's an excellent read uh, for anyone wanting to know more about Harper's Ferry. You can buy it directly from the nonprofit organization that published Perfect. it. I purposely uh, 
went with the Harpers Ferry Park Association, uh, which is the publisher. That's the nonprofit organization that supports National Park at Harpers Ferry. So the proceeds go to Harpers Ferry and help support my national park and your national park, not to a commercial enterprise. Love it. Uh, so all you have to do is just uh, Google Confluence, Harpers Ferry is Destiny. It'll come right up. Also, if you're looking for a good book on John Brown, we suggest uh, Midnight Rising by Tony Horowitz, recently deceased great author. Uh, again, Midnight Rising, uh, a very good you know, uh, book about John Brown. Uh, and uh, go read Uncle Tom's Cabin if you didn't actually read it in middle school. Uh, it's a classic, and it's really one that you should you should have uh, have read. You know, the holidays are coming up, and we want to encourage you to share the show with your family members. So mention the show over the dinner table. Get your uncle that you disagree with so so much politically, uh, but you know he likes history. Uh, you might want to show him how to download a podcast, uh, but it'll be a bonding experience for you. So that's kind of how the show grows. We like to grow it organically, uh, and really a lot of times it is recommendations from our, our many listeners out there. So don't forget to you know mention us over the holidays to, to anyone you think might be interested. Uh, we really appreciate that. Also, don't forget, speaking of the holidays, our Ohio v. the World t-shirts are available. Uh, you know, In the holiday season, we have the special rate, $15, free shipping, really nice tees. You can go to our Instagram page or our Facebook page and look at some of our photos to, to see those. Uh, they're blue and, and really cool. So, again, $15, bucks, we will ship them to you. You just got to email us. Uh, at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. Oh, again, ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. All the proceeds from that go to our, our nonprofit that support local history organizations across the state. Uh, we donated, gosh, $2,500, I think, last year and, and plan to donate a lot more this holiday season. So, again, $15 t shirts. Email us at ohiovtheworld at gmail.com. We'll be back with episode eight uh, as we get close to Christmas here. And we're going to be talking about the origins of the Mafia, a trial in, in 1909 uh, involving the Black Hand Society. Uh, really cracks down on, on really the first instance of a massive organized crime trial, all of which happened in and around Ohio. So we talked with, with two authors who wrote a great book, um, a Simon & Schuster book that, that we really enjoyed. Uh, so we will talk about the early Mafia, the Black Hand Society, on our next episode. So we're very much looking forward to that. Thanks again for listening, guys. Uh, and like we said, spread the show, rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever. Give us that five-star review. Uh, it really helps us move up in the rankings. Very much appreciate it. Have a great day. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-moldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. His soul is marching on. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, 
to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II. Each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.